We're in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you so much for this group on Wednesday nights, their, their sacrifice of their time to be here, to seek you, to worship, to study your word. And I know that for a lot of people, it's been a long week already. It's been a long month already, a, a long day with its own struggles and challenges, Lord, but we're here. And we're here broken before you in our weakness, desiring that your strength would be made perfect. And God, we ask for your will in our lives and your will in our church in Rocky Mountain Calvary. May we learn from these letters that you're speaking to these seven churches, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. The church is so valuable to God. When you look at the church from God's perspective, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to Peter. Peter has just come to the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah He gives this promise to the church. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus promises, and he says that he's going to build his church. And the church is flawed, and the church is broken, and the church is hypocritical. Church history is not pretty, but we're still here today, aren't we? God is still working around the world, committed to building his church. People are coming to know Christ as their Savior. People are growing in their relationship with him. Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Satan has still not won out against the church. And the church is to be offensive. Why would you be at the gates of hell? Because you want to see Satan's youth group reached. You want to see people come out of darkness into the light. You're you're sharing the gospel. And the the church has been empowered by Jesus with the keys to the kingdom. Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, calling the church the house of God, which is the church of the living God. We're God's house. We're God's habitation. He's alive in us. And the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. So when the church goes wayward, it's a big deal in a society. It's a big deal in a community. So far in Revelation, we've seen three churches already from our study last week. The church of Ephesus, do you remember? They left their first love, right? The church of Smyrna is suffering, but they're close to Jesus. They're persecuted, but they're close to Jesus. It makes us think differently about suffering in our lives. Are you going through suffering? Do you wish the suffering away, it may be God's gift to us to keep us close to Christ. And we also saw the church of Pergamos that was corrupt. The doctrine of Balaam had come in to the church. Balaam teaching about sexual sin, and they had adopted the world's message on sexual sin. Tonight we're going to look at the church of Thyatira and the church of Sardis. The church of Thyatira is compromising and the church of Sardis is dead. Remember the applications for us are threefold. First, there's a local application, meaning that these letters are written to seven literal churches. And so they have that local application, but they also have a general application. 
I hope for us as a church family, as Rocky Mountain Calvary, we're, we're hearing and listening what God says through these letters, but also there's a personal application. We may see ourselves in certain parts of these letters. God will use these letters to convict and encourage us. So verse 18 of chapter 2, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. Thyatira is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was 20 miles southeast of Pergamos. There was a road that was the juncture between Pergamos, Sardis, and Smyrna. Thyatira was known for their dyes to make wool. So that's what was their primary export. This is the smallest town so far, but has the largest letter. (laughs) So the smallest in population, but the largest letter. The attributes of Jesus, remember each church has attributes of Jesus. The first is the Son of God. The only time that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God in the book of Revelation. That title points to a deity and also his humanity. That he is God, but he's the Son of God who came in human flesh. Speaks of his humility and of his authority. Specifically here, Jesus is portrayed as the eyes like a flame of fire. In chapter 1, we had a description of our resurrected Savior. And as we get into chapter 2 and 3, there's a part of Christ that is tied to each of these churches. And each is applicable to where the church is at. And Jesus sees the sin that's taking place in the church of Thyatira. He's got eyes that are a flame of fire. And we think of Jesus seeing all of our sin. It can be convicting and it humbling, and even cause us to want to run and hide, like Adam and Eve. And there is that aspect of God seeing our sin, but I hope also that it's warm, that it's the eyes of a, of a loving Savior, that it's the eyes of one who is pursuing us as believers that doesn't want us to continue in sin. You know, when you play hide-and-go-seek with your kids, you do look for them, right? Hopefully, right? <laughs> And Jesus' eyes as a flame of fire means he's looking for you. He's longing for you. He wants what's best for you. He wants relationship with you. So for this church, the message was Jesus has eyes of the flame of fire. He sees your sin and he's calling you back into relationship. And then feet like fine brass, that Jesus is walking with them even in their compromise. Jesus hasn't left them or forsake them. Don't misunderstand. Jesus doesn't approve of their compromise but he hasn't left them. He's got feet of of fine brass. Their commendation, each of these churches get an encouragement from Christ. Always see the best in believers, even when there's a word of correction, even when God would use you to speak rebuke. Here's the commendation. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. So they're commended for six things. Jesus sees their work. They labor hard for Christ. They have love, a love for Jesus and a love for others. There's service, there's serving others. There's faith, there's trusting God. There's patience, which is endurance. And then their works are more at the end than at the beginning. They're laboring more now than they were any time prior. In verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And Jesus gets now right into the rebuke and right into the correction. 
Your understanding of God in his correction is important. It is, it is paramount. It's difficult for us to receive correction. But God tells us that he's a loving father that corrects his children. His correction is actually proof of his love, evidence of his love. That a father disciplines the child that he loves. So when God says nevertheless to the church of Thyatira, when God says nevertheless in our lives to to this church family, it's because he loves us. It's because evidence that we're his kids. If you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you feel the rebuke of the Holy Spirit, that's a good thing. Not a fun thing, but a good thing. So it says, nevertheless, I have this against you because you allow the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. They allow the woman Jezebel to teach. Now, this woman's name is probably not Jezebel, but it's an illustration from the Old Testament. Going back to Ahab's wife, who was this woman that we find in the Old Testament? Ahab had married a, a foreigner. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was the king of Sidon. Not only was Ethbaal the king, but he was also the high priest of Ashroth. And Jezebel was a plague to the children of Israel because she promoted idolatry, sexual sin, and she opposed God's prophets, specifically Elijah. She was the one that gave the death tweet to Elijah and caused him to run for his life after Elijah had stood up against the prophets of Baal. So this woman is teaching in the church and she is adopting the message of Jezebel. So God's using imagery from the Old Testament. Last week it was the doctrine of Balaam and this week it's the teaching of Jezebel. First, let's ponder the importance of what's being taught in a church. It's it's very important. What is being shared with God's people from this pulpit, from men's ministry, women's ministry, over in youth ministry, children's ministry, and small groups, what, what is being taught and what is being allowed to be taught. The, the church leadership is, is allowing this woman Jezebel to have place in the church and she claims to be a prophetess. We should imagine there's gonna be all kinds of crazy teaching in the world. People don't know Jesus. They're caught up with the lies of the enemy, so they're going to teach and believe and share all kinds of craziness. We should expect at secular universities that there's not going to be godly ideas that come from secular universities. They're primarily led by people that don't know Jesus, but we should expect the church to be different. We should expect that in the church that the word of God is read, that the word of God is explained, that the word of God is applied. And when the church stops teaching the message of God, then comes the demise of a church. Then comes the compromise. And so pastors and elders are responsible for what is the teaching in a local church fellowship. And we as individuals are responsible for what teaching we follow. So you're coming to church. You need to be someone who is a Berean. And you're saying, what is a Berean? It was the book of Acts. They would listen to the Apostle Paul and every day they would search the things that Paul was saying to see if it was biblical. They would go through the scriptures and say, is Paul telling us the truth? 
If they're evaluating the Apostle Paul, how much more should we evaluate anybody else that we hear teach, right? So don't give anybody the benefit of the doubt to say, well, they're so-and-so, so I'm just going to accept what, what they're saying. They've been teaching me for so, so many years. You always want to take things that you hear taught from any human being and run it through Scripture. Run it through the filter of Scripture because you don't want to fall for the teaching of Jezebel. Amen? You want to make sure that you're holding to the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ that's revealed in the Word. So what's taught in church is really important. The church is going to follow the teaching. But then also, what you believe, what you choose to say, this is, is from God, is, is really important. And make sure that we're searching out the Scriptures. So what is she teaching? She's seducing and teaching servants of God to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So the two are going hand in hand of sexual sin and idolatry, and inside of the church, this message is being declared. Inside of the church of Thyatira. We talked about this a bit last week because it's similar to the church of Pergamos with the doctrine of Balaam, but it's unfortunate inside of churches that you're finding the world's message on sexuality. Again, the world... Of course, they're going to have a twisted view on sexuality because they don't know the Lord. But the church is the place where you should be able to hear God's message on sexuality because it rocks, right? Inside of marriage, sex is a good thing. Can I get an amen, right? So we need to be holding to the message of what God teaches and, and God shares. But unfortunately, the church is leading the way in this teaching of compromise and into idolatry. This morning I was reading about King Solomon in my devotions in 1 Kings, and there's a pretty good resume for Solomon until you come to the end of his life, and it tells us that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. There's no way he even knew all their names, right? That's a thousand names. I've got four kids and I mix up their names, right? <laughs> He's got a thousand wives. And the Bible tells us that his wives, because he married all of these women from pagan nations, turned his heart away from God. It led him into a direction of idolatry. So sexual sin will lead into idolatry. When we, when we choose sexual sin, in a lot of ways, we're, we're putting sex above God. We're making our idol sex. And in a lot of these pagan religions, the idolatry was connected with sex. There would be sexual sin that would take place right in these places of worship. So we go on, and here's Jesus' response to this in verse 21. And I give her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. God in his patience gives this church an opportunity to repent from sexual immorality. God is extremely patient, and he's extremely long-suffering in our lives the majority of the time, he's much more patient and long-suffering than we would be with one another. Sometimes we can look at our lives or someone else's life and go, when's the correction going to happen? Here's the sexual sin, but there doesn't seem to be any consequence for it. And God, in his kindness, is giving time for repentance, but don't confuse his kindness for his approval. Does that make sense? Because when he does correct, he corrects swiftly. So maybe you find yourself 
in the place of, of sexual sin and you're thinking, man, it's been going on for a while. And God told me that there's nothing hidden, but I've done a pretty good job hiding it. God's patient. He's giving you an opportunity to repent. And it's always better to repent before we get caught. And you will get caught. Our sin will always be exposed. So this may be the opportunity to say, I need to respond to God's kindness. I need to get right with the Lord. And I need to get right with the ones that this affects. If they continue in this rebellion, verse 22, indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So there's still this opportunity to repent. Jesus hasn't brought the consequences yet, but he says if they continue in it, he will cast the church into a sickbed. Think with me on a little bit deeper level. Our compromise, our sexual sin, hinders the health of the local church. So a lot of times we don't think that way because we're, we think individualistically. We're Americans. We, we only think about our own little unit. But what's being said here is church. This is written to a church, not to an individual. Church, if you continue in sexual immorality. Church, if you continue to teach the world's message and put God's stamp on it. Church, you're going into a sickbed. Remember, this is written to believers. This is written to people that know Christ, that work for Christ, that have faith in Christ, endurance, but yet they're also in sexual sin. And Jesus is saying, look, the whole church is going to go into a sickbed unless there is repentance. And this is humbling. This is humbling for us to go, maybe there's a work that God wants to do in Rocky Mountain Calvary, but our sexual sin is preventing God from doing that work. Rocky Mountain Calvary could be more healthy if there was not this reality of, of se sexual sin. The church as a whole, right? Not just our little church, but the church as a whole, the country, the global church, how much healthier would the church be if there were sexual integrity? But instead, there's a sickbed. Could it be said that the church as a whole is sick? You know, is, is the church as healthy as it possibly could be could one of the factors be of sexual sin and the church as a whole has adopted the world's view on sexuality? Saying, saying we're going to actually proclaim the world's view in, in the name of Christ. To get specific, what might this sickbed look like for a believer who is continuing in sexual immorality? God's calling him to repentance. God's heart's always for repentance but they continue in that place of sexual immorality, a few thoughts come to mind is there's a physical consequence, isn't there? There's a physical consequence to sexual sin. Sexually transmitted diseases is one of the factors that come with using sex outside of, of God's design. There's a physical sickbed that can come from sexual sin in the way that God's designed our bodies. Studies show as a person gets addicted to pornography and hours and hours of pornography, their productivity in life goes way, way down, right? To where they're a walking zombie. Could it be that we have a society of unproductive people because of the physical consequences of sexual sin? You know, could we possibly have dads that don't have any energy to be dads and be husbands because of 
pornography, it's, it's actually physically zapping them from their energy. There's a movement of young men in their 20s that aren't even believers that want to be free from por- pornography because they're sick of seeing what it does in their own life. And Time Magazine did an article on it about a year and a half ago. They're saying, no, we don't want this anymore because we see the physical consequences of this. God's design's always been the best. There's also, most importantly, a spiritual consequence to sexual sin, isn't there? Spiritually, we get placed in a sickbed if we're in unrepentant sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6 is humbling, where it declares that when we join ourselves to a harlot, that Christ is joined to a harlot. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He, he's there with us in that sexual sin, and it breaks his heart. It hinders our fellowship with Christ. It hinders our fellowship with Christ. He's light, and he's not going to fellowship with darkness. Any type of rebellion in our lives as a believer is the worst place to be, isn't it? The conviction's so heavy. Get right with the Lord. This whole time, there's a better road here, and it's repentance and restoration. No matter how far gone they are, no matter how twisted and perverted it is, God's saying, look, you can repent, you can get right with me. And then they wouldn't be placed in the sickbed. God's grace and his redemption is greater than our sin. I hope you hear that. This isn't the place that Christ wants anybody, right? He's, he wants everybody in verse 21, in that place of, of repentance. There's also an emotional sickbed that comes with sexual sin. God says there's something different about sexual sin. Not that God rates sin on a scale from one to 10, but he said it's the only sin where we're actually sinning against our own soul. We're destroying our soul when we engage in sexual sin. So God in his love says, look, don't, don't, don't sin in this way because you're destroying your, your soul. I haven't done a, a lot of research on this, but I'm simply guessing off of, off, off of the scripture that there has to be a great link between sexual sin and the destruction of the soul. And that when we open ourselves up to sexual sin, we're also opening up ourselves to a lot of emotional damage. Now, can God restore? Absolutely. He's ready to restore. He's so good at restoring. But we're not going to experience the healing and the restoration of God while we continue in sexual sin. That's where the repentance comes in. But when we repent, then God has the opportunity to begin to restore our lives. Is there hope in verse 21 and 22? Absolutely, there's hope. Because if God says, I don't want you to do this, and I want you to repent, then he will give us the power to be able to change. It's the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, and that our old man was crucified with Christ, buried, and were risen in newness of life, that God forgives you and also has the power to be able to change you. The enemy loves to use sexual sin to provide condemnation in our lives. And I know there's some of you where you're not in sexual sin tonight, but there was a time in your relationship with Christ where you were. And now Satan is just in your face right now through this message, and all you're hearing is condemnation. No, you're forgiven in Christ. We're forgiven in Christ, amen? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't let Satan take you back. That's not where you are anymore. God's rescued you out of that place. And if you find yourself 
in that midst of compromise is cry out to the Lord. Take God up on his offer. Say, I changed my mind, and I changed my direction, and I'm repenting, and I'm getting right with the Lord. God won't put you in the sick bed. He'll take you out of the sick bed. He's the God of the resurrection. He can bring life where, where there is death. So there's a tremendous amount of hope in verse 21 and 22, but there's also a very intense warning if a per- person continues down that path of sexual immorality. In verse 23, I will kill her children with death, and all of the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. What does it mean that God's going to kill her children? I don't think that it's God's going to go after the physical children. But it's speaking of followers. Those that are followers of this teaching of Jezebel, God is going to correct. He's going to bring it to a place of death. And we have to understand that ultimately we're going against God, and there's not going to be any life in this sexual sin. Yeah, sin is fun for a season, but then ultimately it's going to bring death. And he says that he's going to correct in such a way that all of the churches will know that God searches the minds and the hearts. Jesus hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we've seen it time and time again, Christ be faithful to expose sexual sin, especially in the lives of pastoral leadership. And sometimes he waits a really long time. And maybe a pastor or an elder thinks, I'm getting away with this. God's blessing my church. It's growing. People are getting saved. It's prosperous, successful. And then there's this rebellion that they think is hidden. But God always brings it forth, doesn't he? He always exposes it. And then what happens? The whole church goes, whoa. God searches the hearts and minds. He's going to reveal sin. If he, if he re- revealed it in this pastor's life, I know that he's going to reveal it in somebody else's life as well. You know, please pray for pastors, myself and all pastors. It seems like one of the ways that the enemy loves to attack the church and attack pastors is through sexual sin. And we need our pastors of our church and we need the pastors of our community and throughout our land walking in sexual integrity. We're praying for you. Pray for us because God searches the hearts and minds and everything will be revealed. In verse 24, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. This is an encouragement to those that are walking faithfully and those that aren't compromising. No matter who's compromising around you, you don't have to compromise. That's what's happening in the church of Thyatira. There's some that aren't compromising. In verse 26, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So this is part of the promise to those who either aren't compromising or to those who were in compromise and repented and began to hold fast. Jesus says, if you walk with me, then I am going to give you power over the nations. God's going to use you 
to impact the nations. So this is one of the most important things when it comes to sexual integrity. And I'm sorry we're talking about this so much, but this is God's message to the churches. We're simply going through the Bible here. So there's a lot of sex in the Bible. So I'm not going to apologize because God doesn't apologize. It's where the church of Pergamos was at, church of Thyatira. It's where the church is at today, unfortunately. But Jesus says, look, I'm ready to use you to impact the nation. So here's the important truth about sexual integrity is it has everything to do with your spiritual influence. Your spiritual influence. And the enemy knows if we'll forfeit our sexual integrity, that we'll also forfeit our spiritual influence. Think about it in the life of David. As he sinned sexually, he then didn't stand up against sexual sin in the lives of his sons. And it was very blatant. It was in his face. And he got angry, but he didn't hold them accountable. Now again, hear the redemption to the church of Thyatira. Jesus is saying, repent. And if you repent and hold fast, I'm going to use you to impact the nations. It's not too far. It's not too late. Even if you are in that place of sexual sin, walk with the Lord, choose sexual integrity, and you'll be amazed how God will use you to impact the nations. When you think of two people that God used in the Old Testament to impact many, what did they have in common? Who comes to mind? Joseph and Daniel. Joseph and Daniel. And they both had sexual integrity in common. And God used their lives to, to impact the nations. God's heart is for the nations. God wants to reach the nations. He wants all tribes, tongues to come and know Christ as their Savior. I've heard a lot of message on mission and missions and God reaching the nations. And I very rarely heard teachings how sexual integrity results in impacting the nations. We think of Billy Graham, who just passed away. Not a perfect man, but a godly man. And what was there in his life? There was sexual integrity. And God used him. God used him to be able to impact the nations. For those of you that are single, for those of you that are young, for those of you that are, are dating, you know, you're, you're, you're a single person and you're wrestling with, with sexual integrity, choose right now where you're at to serve the Lord and sexual purity because it has everything to do with God using your life. When we think about it as parents in the lives of our kids and as we're instructing them and we're teaching them, this is another level to share with them. Their, their relationship with Christ, it affects your relationship with Christ. It affects your, your future spouse. But it also affects the way that God wants to use your life. And God is faithful and he'll redeem. But you will never regret sexual integrity in your life. This is not the promise that I would have written to a sexually compromising church. But this is exactly who Jesus gives this promise to. He says, if you repent, you walk with me, I'm gonna use you to impact the nations. There's great hope. There's great hope. As the church responds in repentance, God will use us. We get a quote from Psalms 2. It says, he shall rule over them with a rod of iron. Speaking of Jesus, they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And I also have received from my father. Jesus in his second coming is going to come as the conquering king who reigns over the nations. The nations are raging in a crazy way. There's a lot of conflict that is brewing right now 
in Syria that we don't know how is going to result and what, what's going to take place. But ultimately, Jesus is going to return and he's going to return to the Middle East in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives and he will rule and he will reign. And I will give him the morning star. The morning star is the star before sunrise. And then he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's look at the church of Sardis in chapter three. And to the angel in the church in Sardis write, these things say I who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. They, Sardis is 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. So these churches are fairly close uh, together. The attributes of Christ that are given is the one who has the, the seven spirits of God. And we don't know exactly what that means. And there's a, there's a lot of commentary about that. And then the seven stars we know to be the seven angels or the seven messengers. It seems to be that the church of Sardis has a prominent position amongst the other churches, amongst the other seven stars, the the seven messengers. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. This is tragic, right? Their reputation is being alive. People think that they're spiritually alive, but in reality, they're dead. Jesus wrote a lot to the Pharisees that had the outward appearance of being alive, but internally, they are dead. It may be that this church started to care a lot more about outward appearances than a real, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be careful of that. Religion always goes that direction. I've got to wear masks. I've got to keep up the facade. I've got to pretend like I'm alive. Hey, let's not worry about our reputation at Rocky Mountain Calvary. We're not trying to impress people or impress the community. We're, we're broken people. We're sinful people that Jesus loves. But let's hope to and let's strive towards an authentic relationship with Jesus, a real relationship with Jesus. We don't want a reputation of being alive, but in reality being dead. We want to be connected to, to the vine. In verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I've not found your works perfect before God. So what's the remedy for them? Is to be watchful. Okay, your, your church is dying. You're, you're not alive, even though you have the appearance of be, being alive. So be watchful, be on guard, and then strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. This is the exact opposite of what we would probably do in this situation with a church that's dying spiritually. Our tendency would be able to say, there's gotta be new things. You know, one of the reasons this church is dead is because they don't step out in faith, they don't do new things. And that could be true, but what is Christ's instruction? He's saying, where there is life, invest in that. Put yourself in that place where you see some, a little bit of life, then, then invest there and really put effort there. I think this is really applicable to our relationship with the Lord and all relationships. You know, do you feel dead in your relationship with the Lord? Well, look where there's a, few, a little bit of life. Is there a little bit of life in prayer? Invest there. Is there a little bit of life in, in reading the word? In, invest there. Is there a little bit of life in fellowship? Then, then invest there. Is there relationships that are struggling in marriage with children? They seem dead, 
Well, where's there's a little bit of life? Invest there. And we can get at a place where we get discouraged, don't we? And we don't see any life. You're like, man, I, I, I don't see any life in my relationship with my spouse. I don't see any life in my relationship with kids. But look closely, look prayerfully, look for a little bit of life and invest there. Instead of thinking of all of the things that your spouse does that, that drives you nuts, then, then think about a few things that they're doing well, you know? Did they do the dishes? Compliment them on it. Did they go to work today and work hard? Compliment it on it. I was listening to a, a podcast on Focus on the Family, and this mom was talking about her teenage son and how frustrated she was with her teenage son. And she said, I want to try to catch him doing one thing good every day. <laughs> I'm looking for a little bit of life. She said, some days it was really hard to even find one good thing that she was doing. So one day, her sons had sent her an email, some discourse they were having on homework, and she liked the font that he chose to spell his name, right? She's like, you know what, son? I really like that font that you chose today. And that's all that she could come up with to compliment her son on. And that's reality, isn't it? That, that's reality of relationships, right? We're sinners. We live with sinners. We go to church with sinners. And so look where there's life, where there's a little bit of life in your relationship with the Lord, and there's a little bit of life in the relationship with others, and strengthen it because it's, it's ready to die. In verse 3, remember, therefore, how you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. This is a calling back to the word of God. We know that the word of God brings life. Remember how you received and heard. I like that. Because when our hearts were soft to the Lord, we were receiving the word and we were hearing the word. We're in that place of anticipation of God speaking to us. And this says, go back to those, repent and hold fast to that. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I have come upon you. Speaking of Christ's correction, speaking of Christ's judgment. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they've walked with me in white, for they are worthy. No matter what your spiritual environment is, you can choose to, to serve the Lord. There were those in the church of Sardis, just like the church of Thyatira. Even though the church of Sardis was dead, they were doing well, and they, they hadn't compromised. So your spouse doesn't know the Lord, doesn't walk with the Lord. You can walk with the Lord. So your parents don't walk with the Lord. They're completely lost and live pagan lifestyles. You can walk with the Lord, right? Maybe you live in a, a really broken workplace where there's no believers. You can walk with the Lord. Maybe you have found Rocky Mountain Calvary to be less than it should be. I hope that we can grow and glorify the Lord, but that's no excuse for you being healthy in the Lord. Maybe you found the, the body of Christ to not be what it should be. That, that's no excuse for us to be able to be faithful to the Lord. So, so this speaks a lot. The church of Sardis, those that had not defiled their garments, but had walked in a worthy manner. Verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who overcomes will have eternal life. What does it mean to overcome? If you remember back to our study in 1 John, those overcome who believe in Christ, who believe the gospel, his death and resurrection. The exhortation to overcome is the exhortation to continue to believe the gospel, 
to continue to abide in the gospel and allow it to impact our hearts and our lives. So verse six, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church, the priority of listening, the priority of listening. The spirit is speaking. What is the spirit speaking to the church? The church is to be the lampstand. We see that from the book of Revelation. The church has the promise that Jesus is going to build it. The church is the pillar and the, the ground of truth. For the church to be that everything that God intends it to be, the church needs to be teaching the word of God, holding to the word of God, not teaching what Jezebel declares. It's a slippery slope that we live in today, isn't it? Where before long, you go into a lot of churches here in America and, and you find, you know, it really doesn't matter if you live together. As long as you love each other, we're not going to focus on that. You know, we're not going to be legalistic. So we won't even address that. And by all means, what's at the forefront is the gospel. And does someone know Christ as their Savior? But if two people know Christ as their Savior, and the church gets involved in their lives and we love them, what are we going to do? Not in a way of condemnation, but a way of joy of saying, oh, you guys don't live, you guys aren't married? You live together? Do you know what God teaches about marriage? He wants you to commit to each other before God, before one another, before many witnesses. He wants you to make that commitment of marriage. What do you think? All right, great. Let's, let, let's get you married. Let's get you through some premarital counseling and postmarital counseling is available too, right? But you need to be married. Like, we love you. We care for you. Marriage is God's gift. In the book of Proverbs, it says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It doesn't even say he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. It just says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. <laughs> and your ladies are like, it's the same for husbands, right? <laughs> Did you guys know why it reads that way? Because Solomon wrote Proverbs and he's writing to his son. If he was writing to his daughter, he maybe would have flipped it around, right? <laughs> Trying to get myself out of jail. But, but get married, right? Well, we don't really have any intention to get married. Well, separate. You're Christians. You're believers. You're sinning. You're, you're hurting each other. You know, I'm sure in a lot of churches, it's like, ah, we're not even going to tackle pornography. It's such a hard topic to talk about. It seems per pervasive. There's no hope for, for victory. But J Jesus says for us to be pure. He says if we lust after a woman in our heart, we've, we've committed adultery. So as we put the focus on Jesus and we put the focus on the gospel and we study the scriptures and God brings it up, is to be able to say, look, God's calling us to something greater. And Jesus loves you and he can empower you to be able to live differently. So it's really important what the church is teaching, especially in this area of sexuality. So what's the spirit speaking to you in this area, you know? For some, it may be, don't live in condemnation. God's forgiven you. You're not there anymore. Some of you are walking in sexual integrity, and God's saying, be encouraged. Keep going in that direction. Don't get prideful. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. We're all just one decision away. Let's fight together. Let's pray for one another. Let's walk 
in humility. And then there may be some where you, you find yourself in sexual sin and I want you to hear that God loves you. And his eyes, his flame of fire is one of pursuit. And he's saying, I got so much more for you. And there's that call to repentance, which involves actions. It might mean cutting off a relationship. It might mean stop flirting with somebody who's not your spouse. It may mean stop looking at pornography. But I can tell you this, that a road to be used by God to impact the nations is far greater than a spiritual sickbed. I don't, I don't want to be there anymore. I want to see what God could do through my life. There's opportunities inside of our church fellowship to, to get involved with discipleship. Men's and women's ministry is discipleship. As men's and women's ministry meets, get involved. Guys, there's men's studies that are happening all through the week, and we can tell you when those studies are. You don't have to sign up. You need to show up, right? And that's where you're going to grow in, in your relationship with Christ. Take that step to come to the men's retreat. Ladies, take a step and say, I want to be at the women's study on Friday night with Julie Slattery. I'm going to get into a women's study where there's going to be accountability. That's, that's really taking the next step when we say, you know, I want to be in relationship with other believers where I can be honest and see the Lord bring about an area of victory. I would be so depressed to have to share these kind of messages if there wasn't hope for different living. And Jesus said to us that he knows what it's like to be tempted with sin, yet he never was in sin. He never gave in to sin. So to come boldly before his throne. As we take communion to apply it to our hearts and lives for forgiveness of sin, but also for the power of sin to be broken. I really felt like this weekend at our church, if you missed the message in Ephesians chapter 5, is a really important one. That it's not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's Jesus. It's his spirit. It's a relationship with him. It's allowing the spirit of God to lead us. Because we can't do this on our own. Amen? Are we in agreement to that? We know the truth, but we fall short in our flesh. But the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God living inside of us, to lead us and guide us out of sin. Follow the leading of the spirit. I believe the Spirit of God is speaking to you if you're a believer and you're in sexual sin and he's calling you to repentance and he's going to show you the path forward. And it's not going to be behavior mechanisms to change but a real experience with, with, with the Holy Spirit. So as we close, once again, let's listen to the Holy Spirit. What's the Spirit of God speaking to us through his word? Jesus, we're, we're humbled in our lives, whether it's sexual sin or another area of sin. I think we would agree that we experience far more defeat than victory. And God, many times our intentions are right, but our flesh is strong. God, we want to confess our sin to you and ask that you would do a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. Would you be gracious in this area of sexual integrity. For those that are walking strong, God, would you encourage them? Would you bless them? Would you equip them? Well, maybe those that are being tempted, that you would help. For those that find themselves in sexual sin, God, that you 
you would bring conviction, that you would bring deliverance, that you would bring accountability, that Holy Spirit, you would be alive and well in, in all of our lives. And Lord, we know that time is short and we want our lives to count for all of eternity. We pray for the greater knowledge of Jesus in our lives, in this church. And even as we take communion tonight, may it be an intimate time with you. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.